Hello and welcome to today's episode. I will be speaking to Tara Hunter on the principles and practice of affirmative consent. We will discuss the practical implications for frontline health workers, mostly GPs and nurses, and what to do if a patient discloses a non-consensual event to you. Tara, tell us about yourself. So my name is Tara Hunter. I'm the Director of Clinical and Client Services at Full Stop Australia. I'm a social worker. I've worked as a social worker for over 20 years in the health and non-government setting um, and the last of probably 10 years around the space around violence against women, mostly in the sexual assault, sexual and reproductive space. Full Stop Australia is an organisation we provide 24-hour specialist trauma counselling for people impacted by sexual, domestic and family violence. So that's a little bit about myself. I'm really passionate about this area um, and it's great to be here today to talk about affirmative consent. This is the clinical takeaway from HealthEd, interviewing leading medical experts on important topics that can positively impact the way you practice. Here's your host and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Indeed, the topic is affirmative consent. Why don't you tell us about it? Is affirmative consent something that is a, if you like, a homogenous concept through Australia? Where do we stand with regard to state and national understanding of this concept? Yeah, so more broadly, we understand the, you know, the concept of consent. Um, and when we talk about that in a sexual relationship and in, you know, the crime of sexual violence and sexual assault, there is a homogenous understanding that if someone does not give permission for sexual activity, then there's no consent. But more recently, there have been a number of states that have brought in a form affirmative consent laws. And so what that is, is around saying that consent means um, we have to be giving free and voluntary agreement Mm -hmm. to each act of sexual activity and that that can be withdrawn at any point. So we don't across Australia have a law that is consistent around what affirmative consent or consent means. But in New South Wales, we've just recently had some reforms. Um, We've also had them in Victoria more recently, and there are other states like Queensland that are currently considering affirmative consent. What the change means is that consent is not presumed. So one of the things um, that I just give as a really basic example is if someone says to you, um, you know, do you want to come home with me? That doesn't presume that that person is going to have sex with you. What it means is that person's agreed to come home with you and then when you get to their house, the person there needs to be willingness and verbal or some sort of indication that you consent to go inside the door. And then as we go on into if they if both people agree to sexual activity, that there needs to be communication. There needs to be enthusiastic yes, rather than, you know, when we think about things where someone's highly intoxicated or that there's a power imbalance or there being, you know, there's extreme fear and they're not able to say yes, then that is not presumed that the person 
can then go and have sex with someone. Now, that's a very interesting concept of protecting the power imbalances and those who are not in a position to speak. Tara, what do we understand of the perpetrators who want to just ignore all these pleas of stopping or the fear of progression? Is there any understanding of how they might understand this concept of affirmative consent? So it is just about an ongoing mutual communication. Mm -hmm. So if someone's not, you know, if you're not hearing, uh, yes, I want to do this, or the person is physically indicating that they want to do something, Mm -hmm. uh, then the the person initiating the sexual activity needs to stop. And, you know, again, a really good example is if someone's passed out, then that they're not able to give consent. If someone is not able to verbally say, yes, I like this or yes, I want to do this, mm-hmm. then you're not able to continue. I think the other bit is um, going back to my example where, you know, we go to the front door. It's also that when we're actually in the middle of, you know, sexual activity, it doesn't mean just because you've touched someone somewhere that means that that, you know you need to ask about the next steps okay so can I do this next and it sounds like I guess some of the feedback is oh that feels like a bit of a passion killer but really what is really important in this space is really positive communication and actually that can be once it's learned and practiced can be a really good reinforcement around intimacy and actually create better communication for people to feel safe and for people to explore their sexuality. So it's also sometimes when we're talking about this, it's also sometimes about tipping it on its head and and not being really negative and just actually saying, you know, sexual activity is meant to be pleasurable, it's meant to be fun, and how we create that space is by communicating with the person we're with. We don't want to be having sex with someone if they're not into it. I actually see this wonderful concept of mutual respect as being something that you seem to uphold in this one uh, of a person completely respecting the other person's both autonomy and right as an individual. Absolutely. Absolutely. They are, you know, they, they might seem basic, but they're the foundations of what we're trying to do here. And unfortunately, because that doesn't always exist and there are the misuse of power, then we have to have laws that that police these situations. But what we know is that often there is not consent in sexual activity, but what we know is probably around 70 to 80% of people never actually report. Wow. Non-consensual activity. And that's, but you know, one of the places where, people often do feel a little bit safer to talk about something that's happened to them is, you know, going to their GP or other healthcare worker. Now, this is so important because what you describe very clearly to us is how important it is that the communication has to be affirmative, clearly passionate and able to, without fear, say yes to each step. So when a patient say, for example, comes and discloses to a GP, there's a lot we need to understand about the situation 
before we can say, yes, definitely, this is a case of non-consensual uh, advances. What do we do then? How do we confirm it is? And then what do we do after we've confirmed that it had been such an encounter? So I think it's about, again, asking open, not judging questions. So it might be opening something like, it sounds like what you're talking about was not a happy or not a great experience. Are you able to tell me a little bit more about that? Mm-hmm. Or I'm hearing that what happened to you is something that's, you know, is concerning for you. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what those concerns are? Mm-hmm. So there, there's some of the things around actually the really important bits about being believing and being open. So it's not about shutting people down. Mm. It's about um, saying, is that something you want to talk a little bit more about? And and I think it's also in that context about depending on the relationship and the context of the work that you're doing Mm -hmm. is about setting those parameters around confidentiality and, Mm -hmm. and being really clear and transparent around what happens with that information. So it's also about saying, look, I know you're here as my patient and you need to know. So if you're, say, if you're the doctor of the family, for the family, it's Mm -hmm. about saying you need to know that what you're talking to me about is private. And so, for example, you know, I'm not going to go and tell so-and-so. But, you know, if it's a young person and they're under 16, it's also about saying, but I also need to let you know that some of the information, depending on what you tell me, is something that I might have to talk to someone else about, and that's about your safety, and they're, they're going to be conversations I will have with you before I do share that information. Mm-hmm. So it's about setting parameters and about being really clear about where the information goes and what you do with it. Tara, that's a wonderful way of opening up uh, the consult and setting the scene Just for our purposes, let's just say that this particular person is now comfortable with the GP and is willing to discuss and talk about what had happened. Now, imagine that we are the GP. As we are listening, what kind of a checklist do we need to keep in mind to assess the patient's Uh, recounting of the story that they have been abused or that there is a real matter of concern? Yeah, so some of the things that we, you know, that would be really important to understand is safety. So asking the person, look, do you feel safe now? Do you have ongoing contact with this person that's harmed you? So that's, that you know, that's really essential before that person leaves your office and that might not be the first question. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it might be the last question it might be mm-hmm. saying, look, you've given me this whole history. I just want to make sure that you don't have ongoing contact with this person. So mm-hmm. the, the safety is really important. Mm-hmm. It's about asking, you know, and I guess I'm not making too many assumptions, but if someone's walked into a doctor's office quite often, and I've worked in a sexual assault service where often people are presenting, they have real concerns about what's happened to them physically. Mm-hmm. They want to know that their body's working okay. They might have concerns about pregnancy, mm-hmm. uh, risk of sex- sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. They may actually, and, you know, this is 
a further bit of the conversation we can have, but they may actually want to have an examination to just check that everything looks okay. Mm -hmm. So there are some of the things around, again, asking those open questions. Um, you've told me this information. What do you want to do next with that? I, you know, could you explain to me what some of your concerns are? Yeah. If that person's not able to verbalise them, then it might be have, having that little checklist to say, look, we know that some of the common concerns for people in this situation might be things like pregnancy or mm -hmm. sexually transmitted infections. Mm. Are there particular injuries or, you know, are, do you have pain somewhere? So they're some of the questions that you might use as prompters. Very important. Thank you for that. And, you know, the, this is the cycle, the physical bit, but there's also the psychological well-being. And this is, I guess, where organisations like ours, where we've got, you know, phone counselling support, you mm -hmm. can refer people on. But some of the really common responses that we see to people, see for people that have been impacted by sexual violence and sexual assault and other kinds of gender-based violence, such as domestic and family violence, it's really common for people to have nightmares. It's really common for people to have ongoing anxiety, um, what we call hypervigilance. So people that are really easily startled and, you know, live with a sense of foreboding kind of fear and worry that they and feeling really vigilant, which again feeds into those things where people aren't able to sleep. Often people aren't able to go to work. So it's also just checking in and saying, look, you know, we've covered off the physical bids. Mm -hmm. how, how are you going? Have you talked to someone else about this? Mm -hmm. Have you, you know, what's happening with your normal, what, what, what does this look like for your normal routine? Have you been able to, depending on what the person's doing, have you been able to, you know, go to work, go to school, what's happening in, you know, your relationships, either your intimate relationships or relationships with family and friends. Yes. So they're also really important to cover off. And we don't, you can't feel like you have to fix everything, mm -hmm. uh, but it is, and it's again, being transparent, look, that's probably not my area of expertise, but what I can do is, you know, we do have a range of services we can refer you on to. So important for us to know what those services are, because it's, not all of us have been exposed to a situation like this. Some of us has been. We may not have dealt with it as well as what you've just told us. And so having a set of resources is always helpful. Yes, absolutely. So there are, you know, I'll, I'll give a great plug for our service. So, uh, you know, really easy, 1-800 full stop. And people can also get online and do online counselling at fullstop.org.au. Depending on where you're based and what the presentations are for people, there might be um, referrals around state-based services or actual um, hospital-based services. So if we're talking about sexual assault and a recent sexual assault, it's also about understanding what um, medical and forensic specialist services might exist um, in your state. And again, an organisation like ours can actually give you advice and information and, and a warm referral through to those services. So there, there's some of the things that you might look at in a crisis. Look, the resources and the services are vast and varied. And so it's also, yeah, 
somewhere like ours, one eight hundred full stop or one eight hundred respect as an initial point yeah. are are really good. Um, and also things like our um, website have has good information and resources. The other thing is talking to people about their options um, around reporting to police as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And so, again, if that person wants to get further information, they can call a service like ours or they could go to, so I can talk about the New South Wales context. Mm -hmm. um, each of the local health districts has a 24-hour sexual assault response. So it's an integrated response with a doctor and a counsellor. And if someone's been assaulted with up to the last seven days, then they're generally eligible to attend that for a crisis response. So it would be calling through to the local hospital and speaking to the worker and, and doing the assessment that way. And those service kinds of services um, are across Australia. We know there are, um, there are black spots, but there are generally a phone number that you could call 24 hours to get that kind of information around what, what are the next steps. Tara, this works if the person is not at currently at risk and has the time to discuss with you and agree to want to move forward uh, with yes. supporting. What about the person who is frightened? You are concerned about the safety of that person, but maybe there might be a minor involved whose safety you are also concerned about, but may not be in the rooms with you. And the data yeah. is still not gone, if you like. Yeah. We do. A few different, <laughs> there are a few different elements there. One of them is that any report of sexual assault for someone under, under 16 in New South Wales, it's different in different states, requires a mandatory report. Mm -hmm. And that can either be either through an e-report or through a phone line, so the Child Protection Helpline, and that's a 24-hour response. But there's also um, the Child Story Reporter through the Department of Communities and Justice um, where you can log an e-report. So it's absolutely essential that that report is made. But there's also talking around the practicalities around safety. So it might be, again, this is where, as a GP, or a practice nurse, you know, that might not be your area of expertise. And we know that this also can take up quite a long lot of time. So it might be talking to a non-offending parent or caregiver around saying, look, I'm going to need to make a mandatory report here today. But in the meantime, I'm concerned about your safety. I'd like to make a referral to either the local hospital or put that parent through um, on the phone to somewhere like 1800RESPECT or our service 1800 full stop to actually make a safety plan. But you do, you absolutely, if you're concerned about someone's immediate safety, then you need to make a report. In certain instances, you may need to make a report to the police. But in these scenarios, again, they are often quite complex and it is better to actually have a conversation with someone that has some expertise in this space and do a bit of a consult before or you can actually ring ring the the police the local police and actually talk about a scenario without identifying a patient to say look I've got this scenario presenting you know what do I need to do 
<laughs> but most often, particularly if we're dealing with an adult in the sexual assault space and in the domestic and family violence space, unless there is a severe injury or really extreme circumstances around someone's ongoing safety, then we really want to work with the person being harmed okay. around getting their consent. <laughs> because when we think about it, if you say, look, I'm going to call the police, even though you don't want the police to be called, the police mm -hmm. turn up and that person is not a willing participant. Yep. And it generally doesn't go that well. <laughs> so, you know, and that I need to couch that with, you know, if there is extreme risk, then absolutely we need to just call the police and say, look, I'm so concerned about your safety. So if there's ongoing threat to that person, if there has been a serious injury, then you need to say, look, as a healthcare provider, I'm required to re report to the police directly. I prefer your consent, but if, you, if you're not able to give it, I'm required. But we all, the best thing is about communication and being transparent. The best way to do this is actually to talk to people and to say, the things you've told me make me feel really concerned. Mm -hmm. These are the options around accessing services or, you know, you making your own report. How can I support you doing that? Mm -hmm. And the other bits are, is if people have identified risks and safety concerns, but you don't believe them to be imminent risks, then the other bit would be about trying to invite that person back. For, further, for a further consult, just to say, look, these are the things we've covered off today. You know, I'd really, it'd be really great if you're able to come in next week and we can, I'd like to just check in and see where you're up to. Often there's quite a lot of things that need to be covered off and it might be that you need to kind of just say, these are like, we need to cover X, Y and Z today because they're the urgent bits, but I would like to check in with you. And all those processes around communication and engagement, as you would hopefully have noted, are really very much aligned with the same conversation I was having around what happens in a, in a relationship with someone and seeking their affirmative consent. So as a healthcare provider, it is about also modelling that consent and that respect and checking in and saying to that patient, where where I can, I'm putting you in the driver's seat here. I'm bringing my expertise, um, but actually I'm also acknowledging that, that this is your life, your body, your situation, and that I'm here to facilitate a best outcome for you and giving you some choice. You may not know this, Chara, but sometimes just hearing you say those things is very helpful uh, to model. Uh, our consults upon. And it is such a good demonstration, again, of affirmative consent, uh, almost yes. step by step, uh, putting the patient in charge, uh, not going to the next step until they come with you, giving them all the information they need to actually make a decision. And I love the fact that if there is a duty of care, that we actually inform them that even if they didn't go ahead and give us a consent out of the safety, their physical safety, we actually have a duty of care. So why don't we start by letting you know that and see if you want to be the driver in the seat and take me, take me along. Absolutely. It's, you know, and 
all the things that I've just outlined are well, and you, you may or may not hear, hear around things what we call a uh, trauma-informed care. They're all the key principles. So the key principles are around safety. They're about choice. They're around collaboration. Mm. Um, and we know that when we work with people in that way, we actually get the best outcomes. Mm. And we also get people that feel safe to come back. Yep. So that when, you know, if the risk escalates, that they know that you're a safe space. Yep. Um, they know what to expect. When I'm recording all these notes, do I need to make a comment about whether or not the story given to us, uh, you know, uh, did, was it a non-consensual? What, what sort of, a, what's, how do we document, if you like, the actual pre-event that you're worried about. So it contextualizes and says, no, there was no consent. And then what do we need to document because our notes may be required? Okay, so yeah, absolutely. Your, your notes may or may not be subject to subpoena, but they also might be supportive of someone's case going forward. Mm-hmm. Look, the, be- the things that you need to remember is you just need to record that person's history you're not uh, there necessarily to make a judgment Mm -hmm. what you're there to do is is when someone says x y and z happened is just actually record Mm -hmm. you know so and so presented today um, and they described the following scenario x y z so what you really want to do is actually uh, not put your judgment in, mm-hmm. not put you, and I know that's probably the antithesis of um, medical <laughs> medical note taking or uh, recording for doctors because you're there, you're there to make a diagnosis and a, and an opinion. What you're there to do is actually to uh, reflect what that person has described, and they might say to you, "Look, I, you know, I had drunk ten drinks," or I think, you know, I think I might have, someone might have put some, a substance in my, in my drink. So all that, that information needs to be included, but what you don't uh, need to do is uh, put in judgments around that person's behaviour or what you think might have happened. It's actually about presenting the story itself. And also, obviously, documenting any kind of injuries or any concern, you know, the the person might verbally say, I feel sore X, but, you know, they decline to have um, an examination, which, again, is absolutely that person's choice. Um, But just also, again, providing context around what the person's presenting concerns were and any findings around those presenting concerns. Because what those records are being used for is to, um, so if that person goes on to make a statement to the police, we want, you know, that is used to kind of support what the information that's provided to the police. Thank you for clearing that up, Tara, because there is often the need to not judge, but be so supportive and overly supportive that we might write down statements that might in fact be more what we think rather than what had happened. Yeah, and look, it's perfectly viable to say, you know, Jane presented today and she described a situation where she identified that someone had non-consensual sex with her 
and these are the following you know scenarios that support that statement so you need to have kind of the story or the the bulk to support your statement around um, something like that really because I guess that's where people get tripped up is that they you know you're making a sweep sweeping statement without the evidence or the the information to support it but you know I guess and I'm pretty biased um because I worked in a sexual assault service for for a number of years that if it is a recent assault or even you know I would really strongly encourage people to go to that space where and again we you know they they're, they're the principles we operate on we would never uh force anyone to talk or give more information than they're comfortable with or have an examination. But I guess in that space, the way it's set up is that we have a whole range of processes around protecting people's information and privacy and choices around that. And I think that's something probably really important to understand is that any disclosure around sexual assault that docu that is documented in a patient's record doesn't matter whether it's a, a a historical or recent assault are actually uh, protected by a thing called sexual assault communications privilege so that if you do have someone coming and requesting their records that you actually should seek legal advice around that or tell the patient and they should seek legal advice around it right that's important to tell us that yeah Tara, this has been really helpful, and I'm so glad that there are people like Full Stop Around because, um, you know, when you don't do things often, um, you don't do things well necessarily. So it's good to have those experts and those who have done uh, these sorts of things well uh, behind us. Yeah. Can I just say something about that? People make choices to tell, you know, healthcare providers and um, their doctors they're often the first point of disclosure and often you do this really well and it's actually acknowledging that this is often a really complex presentation and you have this need to fix it and make it okay but actually the best way you can make it okay is being a safe person to tell mm -hmm. and so it's actually about sitting sometimes with stuff that's actually really quite hard to hear but I, that can be a really powerful intervention for someone and that can be a really positive outcome because we know that lots of people don't tell we know historically that people do tell these stories and they're not heard properly or they're judged or they're dismissed so one of the most you know if I can I've given you lots of information and lots of complexities but actually there's really simple messaging which is just being able to sit and listen and give those people, give people choice around what happens next. And that actually is more powerful than you'll ever know. And that is probably the most empowering thing you can say to us. Yeah, because I don't, I, I hate for people to think, oh, this is so complicated. And I think that's what happens. This is so complicated. I'm just going to shut down this conversation. And actually, you don't need to be fishing for more information. You just need to ask the key questions to make sure people are safe physically and psychologically so you don't need to do your own investigation but it is also important to be you know to hear people tara that is such an important uh, interview i uh, hope that my colleagues will gain as much as i did from this do you have final messages for our listeners 
think I probably just talked about some of those final messages. So I think there's stick to the facts. So if you don't understand, if you don't know what the laws are, you know, seek advice, as I said, from say a service like ours at 1900 full stop. So seek advice where you don't know the information, but stick to the facts, understand what consent is, um, and be able to actually have an open conversation with someone around that because again if we use the facts it can often be help challenge some of the the thoughts and the worries that people come with themselves so it's about saying look if you're unconscious or if you didn't say yes then actually that isn't consent so Mm -hmm. there's some really good examples of how you can stick to the facts choice I think I've said that five million times but again I'll say it again you know, where you can give people choice and where you can't be transparent around what happens next and actually give people reasons why. Look, these are the reasons why I'm going to do this, X, Y and Z, because I have to. Um, So they're some of the things. Um, Be open to make, you know, to give people options around following up and also give people, when we're talking about choice, give people choice around what where they go for further support. So... I think the other thing that can happen when someone's been um, experienced a sexual assault, you know, often people say, oh, you need to go and get counselling. Actually, people don't need to go and get counselling. What they do need is an option around these are some of the things that might happen for you following a sexual assault. There's a support available and this is how you find it. And, you know, again, in my experience, that might not be in the first two weeks because people are in shock it might actually be three months down the track mm-hmm. when things have settled and they're actually not able to get out of bed or they're not able to go to work or they're having nightmares. And so it's about arming people with the resources so they've got choices down the track. And I hope that we will be able to attach a, a list of the resources to your podcast for our listeners. Absolutely, absolutely. There's some really good information about the changes to the New South Wales consent laws. So I can send them to you. I can send you some information about our service and, and training options as well. I think that was the other thing we kind of haven't covered off is that there is training and support available um, for health prof- health professionals um, in, this, in this space around how we become a tellable um, person and, and respond with compassion. Um, but you can also, you know, as a health practitioner, reach out to a service like ours for advice or even just to debrief because often these consults can be quite challenging. Well, Tara, that was an incredibly important time. I I think you've covered some very useful points and I really do feel that. I mean, you've just done two very simple things for us. Uh, One is to teach us how to, if you like, uh, get affirmative consent uh, as we go along. And the second is just to empower us that really Uh, And you said it so well, Uh, we can be overwhelmed by the complexities, but guys, it really isn't that hard. Fabulous. Okay. Thanks so much, David. Bye, Tara. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free 
you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.